0: This is Book Speaks and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, historians, and others barely acknowledged by the mainstream media. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with Natalie Hopkinson about her book titled A Mouth is Always Muzzled. This book communicates the extraordinary story of the ways art brings hope in perilous times and art's insistent role in contemporary politics and life, weaving disparate topics from sugar and British colonialism to attacks on free speech and Facebook activism and traveling a jagged path across Americas, Africa, India, and Europe. Natalie Hopkinson argues that art is where the future is negotiated. Natalie Hopkinson is an assistant professor in Howard University's graduate program in communications, culture and media studies and a fellow at the Interactivity Foundation. She is also a former staff writer, editor and culture critic at The Washington Post and The Root. Natalie Hopkinson, welcome to Book Speeds and Beyond.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you. So before we get into it, what compelled you to write this book?
1: So what compelled me to write this book, I was working on this project for the Interactivity Foundation, um, which looked at the future of the arts and society. And I was conducting these uh, panels of conversations with people all over um, all over the place, uh, including in uh, Guyana south america where my parents are from and uh the new press approached me about writing a full giving it a full be- book length treatment and so that's when i went back to guyana and continued um, following the story of some of the artists that i connected with in guyana
0: ah so your parents are from guyana did you spend any time were you raised at all a little bit in guyana you have any connection physically to guyana
1: we visited, uh mm-hmm. definitely was not raised there. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had a few visits in my childhood and um in two thousand eleven I was probably the longest time that I spent in, in the period that I um started doing the if arts conversations. But no, I've just been a visitor. Yeah. And it kinda just something I had been hearing about my whole life from my parents.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can see how that could compel you. <laughs> so what are the roles of artists in society? Like, what part do they play in making change?
1: Yeah. So, in the book, I there are many answers to that question through the book, and there's a lot of answers to that question in general, probably unlimited. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for the purposes of this, we sort of focused on two uh, very different but very compelling views of what the role of the artist is. So the two main characters who kind of drive, drive the narrative are a, a millennial age poet, uh, Ruel Johnson is an Afro-Guyanese poet in his thirties. Uh, he believes that art is the tool for social change, art using art as expression. You, you use it to express yourself against tyranny and also art as a way to animate whole communities, you know, creating a whole, um, creative sector that can be an economic liberation as well. Um, Bernadette Prasad is a painter, and she's in her uh, late 60s when we meet her. And she has personally used art as a way to speak out against um, oppression in Guyana um, in her in her very story career. But she has a little bit of a different take. She's very skeptical of government being involved in any part of uh, controlling or directing what uh, what happens in art.
2: Why is that art is a
1: very personal thing. Well, she finds it's a very personal thing, and it's kind of ruined. Uh, she finds when it becomes part of the state
0: mm. model
1: mm-hmm. of, um, you know, this is this is how we're developing ourselves, and now it's time for us to paint, you know, and create. Like <laughs> right. She, she right. believes it's it's much, and you know, she has her personal experiences are what uh, compelled her to have that. Opinion, you know during the, the era she saw that after independence in Guyana there was a strong socialist um, bent and you know, she was personally felt like she people tried to just put her in this mold and she Rejected that forcefully
0: right because that, that kind of makes sense because art is freedom of expression and If you have a government that's trying to bend it in a certain way, I can see how that just causes resistance
1: yeah, or just the idea that, you know, artists are just tools. Right. You know, they're just tools to do to do things for people and they're not. I mean, to her it's it's a much more uh personal expression and it has to be free. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to be something that comes so she you know, my one of my favorite quotes she said, The artist has to tilt at the wind.
2: Mm. You know, that's
1: what the job of the artist is to do, is to yeah. tilt at the wind. Right. Um and so but at the same time, she is as feisty as they come, you know, as far as her <laughs> yeah. speaking out. Yeah, she
0: yeah. definitely, was. she definitely was. Before we go a little deeper, I just want to bring it back to the people who really don't understand Guyana, um, and if you can, try to talk about where is it located and w- what are the demographics of Guyana?
1: Yeah, so Guyana is in the northern tip of South America. It's next to Venezuela and Suriname and Brazil. So the Guyanas were actually, there, originally there were five Guyanas, and Guyana means land of many waters. Hmm. So originally there was British Guyana, French Guyana, Suriname with Dutch Guyana, Venezuela can be considered Spanish Guyana, and then Brazil would be Portuguese Guyana. So it's like this region (laughs) of, there's a lot of water, and so it's at the crossroads of all these empires. Uh And the one that I focused on is British Guyana. and so the British Guyana culturally is very part of the Caribbean. So the accent, the food, a lot of is all very similar to other islands in the Caribbean, even though it's on the South American mainland.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there are, it's also known as the land of six races. Um, but the two dominant groups are the, – the largest ethnic group is of Indian descent. Indian. So these were indentured sugar workers who were brought in at the end of slavery uh, when slavery was abolished in the British Empire. They replaced the African workers with Indian indentured workers. And were so
0: they the Indi- were they forced there? Okay. Were they forced there in any way? How how, that, that, how did that migration work for the East Indians?
1: Well, the, well, so the the Africans who originally were brought into work were absolutely forced yeah. um, to Guyana, and they're the second largest group. So they make up about thirty percent of the population, and they've been there since the Dutch were early. You know, like there were many different colonial. Um, People who would colonize the Guyana area. So the Dutch, the French, Spanish, everybody was there and they brought in African slaves. The Indian, uh, so the the abolition was in 1834. Um, and so that's when they, at the time of abolition, Guyana was one of the most profitable sugar colonies because of the climate.
2: Sugar. You could
1: Mm -hmm. get two, you could get two sugar cane crops as opposed to one compared to the other. Wow. um, it was very um, profitable, and so they, the government actually helped the sugar planters bring in workers from India. Mm. Now, sort of on the face of it, it was voluntary. They wanted to leave, but when they arrived in Guyana, they found their conditions were not very much better than uh, the Africans, but but they were better.
2: Exploited. So they being exploited. Mm-hmm.
1: It, yeah, they were definitely exploited. They took over the same slave Um, lodgings that that the African slaves worked in, Mm -hmm. but because they were, they did get treated a little bit better because they wanted them to stay. So they ended up getting access to land that Africans didn't get access to. They, you know, they had a lot of opportunities that, um, that, that Africans did not get, but they were also horribly treated, you know, so this is not a, happy migration
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> um, for the most part. Uh, so those are the two groups and because of that history there is a lot of tension between Africans and Indians. Uh, the African population basically at that point is considered surplus, right? So they just mm. want them out. If they're not going to work these sugar plantations, the planters just wanted them out and mm. um, so they, it, they really found it difficult to find a way to survive um, at the end of slavery. And the Indians also sh- have struggled, you know, historically. They were not, because of their religious um background, they were not allowed into English schools. So, you know, they, a lot of the African, people of African descent that were actually better educated because they had converted to Christianity. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of tension there between these two groups that are rooted in that history. And they have been inflamed by various colonial powers right. over the last, uh, Hundred years and up till today, they've been there. There's still there's still a lot of tension uh, wow. between these two
0: groups. Wow. So, you know, with such a broad broad multiculturalism and a shared history of oppression and exploitation, mm-hmm. do the people acknowledge this and get along in Guyana in any sort of way, or is it or is it just still a lot of cultural antagonism?
1: there's still a lot of antagonism um and so the period that my book covers is the 2015 election hmm. and so this is the this is the first time that so after independence the african <laughs> the african leadership was installed by the U- united states and the british uh, and the yeah. election, elections were rigged for you know two decades so that um there was a you know that an african dominated party uh, ruled guyana and then Uh, Jimmy Carter came in, oversaw these elections. First free and fair elections were not until 1992, and that's where an Indian-dominated party uh, takes over. The period that I covered in 2015 was when, for the first time, that Indian-dominated party had become corrupt, um, and a multiracial coalition challenged them for the first time. So it was really sort of the first test of whether okay, we know what the demographics are, um, but can people get past
2: <laughs> yeah. this
1: idea that only Indians have to rule an Indian-dominated culture, or only Africans have to rule an African-dominated culture? And you know, does corruption matter? And you know, authoritarianism. There were um, there was a lot of repression. A, a, a protester was killed during this election. Mm-hmm. to lead up to this election. So it was a very tense, tense time.
0: You talk about in the book this this festival called, if I'm saying it right, Mashrami. Mashramani,
1: Mashramani. yes. How do you say it again? Yes. I'm sorry. It's Mashramani oh, or Mash.
0: Okay. And it seems like everybody kind of gets together. It seemed like more of the younger generations versus the older generations. They both had different perspectives on what Mash represents and what Mash projects about what is in store for the future. If you could talk about, absolutely. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Carnival is a very Caribbean thing, and, um, Guyana's is, is quite unique and quite colorful. Um, the other thing, you know, I said, I mentioned is land of six races. So it's not just Indian and black, although right. they dominate. There's also this indigenous part as well. So Guyana's probably the only Caribbean or West Indian country, um, that has such a large indigenous population. So there's still 10% of the population. And so Mashamani is is the the word is um said to be an Arawak word. Mm-hmm. Uh and so it's sort of building on that and so it's a very unique cultural stew where you have, you know, um calypso and chutney
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> uh competitions, but then you also have uh you know, a lot of indigenous imagery in the in the in the festival. But it was created under this African dominated regime, so there's still some resentment about um resentment about it and Um, but for the younger people who I interviewed in 2015, they, you know, if you're less than 20 years old and they were the largest voting group, they had no memory of the oppression of the African Mm -hmm. (laughs) regime. They have no memory of the British ruling, um they are just ready for change. They're mm-hmm. ready for a new future. And so they don't have a lot of ways. They don't have a lot of the baggage that their parents' generation does, although they would grow up hearing these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but as far as the festival goes, the ones I talked to, they were like, this is where we come to have a good time. And this is what everybody does. <laughs> yeah. So and that's what I saw at Mashramani. Everybody winding down.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All the races. Well, that, that's um, that's hopeful, you know, because MASH seems like, an artistic way, artistic, artistic expression. So and in there, it seemed like the younger generation, their form of resistance isn't something they don't even really know that they are resisting in a sense, just by getting together, getting along. And that's right. You kind of talked about how the government is tries to involve themselves in mosh in some way, but it kind of comes off kind of contrived in a sense. Right.
1: That's right. That's right. And that's this is something that's very stable from the, when the British ruled to when the Africans ruled to when the Indians ruled. Mm. They all used culture as a way to control um, people, you know, it as it was, it was a form of patronage. And so this was both the African. So the British, when the British ruled, there was no Mashamani. Mashamani mm. does not come until the 70s. Right. But okay. they had other ways that they culturally controlled the population through education and through a lot of other cultural um, uh institutions that I, which I do talk about in the book. But for the last two um, uh, regimes, the Bashar has been a thing that they do. So it's a way of patronizing people. They would have these youth groups and they would pay them a good amount of money to participate, you know, and it's sort of a way of buying votes. You know, and They have a lot of ways to, you know, produce. So then there's a lot of government electioneering and, and, you know, so it's sort of like a, it became a way. So this is what Bernadette is talking about. It was compulsory in the schools. Everyone mm. had to participate, and it it was it, it, the government did try to use it as a way to um, way to control right. the public. And so there's resistance to that.
0: We're going to stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back.
3: Hi, 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 My ready. My girl's ready, ready. my drink's ready. ready, my crew ready. ready. So when you see me, mash they don't fix, come and get the number. Now shake that bumper I roll that bumper. Go long for the bumper and wipe for the bumper. Wind down to the ground and come back up. Now hand me some bangs, let me get it on the number. Celebrity, mash your money and get the number from position to the damn and get the number all over in the national park. When I done, it's revenge. Fast. I don't walk up a hop and get an' bad Wind down to the ground and get an' bad And jump and weave and get an' bad Jump up on the ground and get an' bad Do on the girl and get an' bad behind the truck, I get an' bad When I done. you won't think that I mad How I gettin' on bad? I ain't care who fix or who looking at me Ma sure money is to celebrate a job well done See if you old, if you young, if you rich and I ain't got none Now ain't no problem man, just come and let me get on bad Get on bad Get on, bot, 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 Let me get on, bot, get on, bot, get on bot, 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 Hi, 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 My flowers ready. My girl's ready. My drink's
0: ready. You talk about six dissidents who in different ways hope that their art might bring about positive political change. Unfortunately we can't talk about all of them, but we'll leave a lot of that to be revealed by the reader.
2: Yeah. But, but <laughs> let,
0: let's talk about right now uh Kara Walker and if we have time, Walter Rodney. Now yes. who talk about who is Kara Walker and why you included her in the book. Okay.
1: So Kara Walker is one of these one-percenter artists. She's a global um, yeah. icon. She's one of the most fated, celebrated artists in America and in the world. Um, and her work, she's not an undergra- underdog artist at all. Um, but I was very struck by her. She did a, a piece um, called the Sugar Sphinx, which is a 40-ton Installation. I know, it was
2: fascinating. Built up
1: sugar. It was incredible <laughs> in the old domino sugar factory in New York City, in Brooklyn. Mm. Um, and it, the domino sugar factory was closing. And so she was commissioned to basically do this amazing thing. And so she created this big sugar sphinx, which is a sort of a black mammy figure.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but in the, in the image of a sphinx. So it was like a monument. Black women who worked in sugar cane fields, and it was such a um, powerful—you know, hundreds of thousands of people went to see it, and um, it was such a powerful moment. I felt globally because it really was a visual expression of all this. So, first of all, the trade, the sugar trade, touched—they called it the triangular sugar trade—so it Mm. touched the Americas, um, you know, Europe, and Africa, you know, where the and India where the uh, where the workers have come. So this is a global web um that many of us who are from the Caribbean we trace our history to. Mm-hmm. You know, so this um this piece that she did was just monumental. Mm-hmm. It was stunning. But it also was really stunning in the people's reactions to right, it. Because yeah. <laughs> people just kinda of lost their mind. And they were sexualizing the sugar cakes. They were and you no say theory. you say they
0: were sexualizing it because if you can describe how the sugar sphinx it, it looks like the sphinx, but it was really accentuating the different parts of the female, right?
1: Yes, it does. So part of her the the, the source material she she looked at rap videos, mm. you know. So like when you get to the back of the sugar sphinx, the sphinx. The Sphinx has got back. Like she's very you know, she's very cur- curvaceous yeah. in the back. And she is um, – so she's very curvaceous. Um, her vulva is out. Mm-hmm. It's the largest vulva I've ever seen. <laughs> you know? um, and she is – but then her head sort of looks like Kara Walker herself. So mm-hmm. she's got like a, a, a handkerchief on her head or a head wrap, head wrap on her head, not handkerchief she has a head wrap on her head that she looks, she's very regal in the front. And so the Sphinx, the front looks like, um, and I've got the pictures that actually my daughter took her in the book. She and, did a great um, job.
0: She did a great job.
1: And they, they, she, they encouraged people to post social media um, images using yeah. the hashtag um, sugar Sphinx. And so this was sort of an invitation for a dialogue. And so with, uh, you know, people sexualizing her and sort of really trying to really degrading the sugar sphinx was like, like it sort of brought out all of this history of degradation um, Uh that you could really trace back to the sugar cane, sugar cane fields And so, and that's what I do. You know, I went back and I looked at some of the literature that talked about, women's experiences in sugar, um mm-hmm. in working the sugar cane fields. And that didn't just include African workers. It also included Indian workers. Mm-hmm. So that's where I brought in the work of uh, Gaitra Bahadur, a brilliant Guyanese um, author who uh, did a book called Cooley Woman, where she looked at the experiences of women sugar workers, and many of them um you know it's it's a very common story for women for women of African descent and women of of uh, Indian descent as well. this degradation that they felt on the field. Um, yeah. she also talked about the the, the uh, domestic violence, you know the same tools that were used to harvest sugar like th- these cutlasses were also used to literally cut down women wow um, so it's it's a re- it became a very heavy chapter <laughs> yeah
0: cuz you actually talked about um women were purposely outnumbered on the sugar plantations and yep. you talked about gendered oppression and and how mm-hmm. this horribly affected the women that was interesting.
1: Yes. So this is something that's true in many of the areas, er- like probably throughout the Caribbean um, and definitely in, in Guyana and in places like Jamaica, and also Fiji, Mauritius, mm. you know, other places where they had workers, but they would never had enough women, mm. you know. So on the one hand, the women, so in some ways, they had more power because they could choose between these different. Uh, they, you know, they had their choice. They had men buying for them.
2: Yeah. But it
1: also created sort of a they uh, called it like a feral. Andrea um, Stewart, who has written about this in her book *Sugar and Blood*, it created sort of a feral state, you know, where it was sort of anything goes, and women were um, raped. Women were objectified by their fe- fellow workers. Also, the overseers working the plantation, you know, the plantation owners. Um, and it just really set up this you know the scarcity of women really set up this horrible um horrible situation, this horrible imbalance um mm-hmm. in the colonies
0: yeah and if if I remember correctly, the sugar sphinx um she I forgot what it was called, but they used to make these little candies, back, yes, back subtleties then. subtleties, yeah, can you just talk yeah. about that a little bit,
1: yeah, so the other um source material that um Kara Walker mentioned was you know reading uh, was a book called um sydney mints sweetness and power and he talked about the history of sugar and how it really became you know at the beginning like by the 17th century it was a it was a luxury and only rich people could use sugar and so it became a thing where to have sugar was to to show off your wealth Mm -hmm. so sort of a status symbol so they would actually have these massive um sugar sculptures made of sugar and it was just and they would Flaunted out to their guests. And that was a way to show off how much money you had. So this was part of the title that um, Kara Walker gave. So she called it a subtlety mm-hmm. um, was the actual, the official title. So it sort of harkens back to that time. Um, but where I'm sort of making the connection to Guyana and the rest of the Caribbean is that the moment that they became the moment that they stopped being a luxury and only for the elite, it was a moment that really the, the West Indies, comes comes into fruition, right, so that's when these these colonies became profitable when they came upon. they realized they could grow sugar, mm-hmm. and it was like printing money at that point because um the amount of the sugar consumption um just quadrupled yeah. um in the time, and so you know they kind of hit the winning formula once they got sugar and so it became a mass product um and that led to the rise of the West Indies,
0: wow do you think that? Kara Walker was able to get her narrative across. Do you think she hit the mark with the people who saw the Sugar Sphinx? Um, and do you think it raised something that was subconscious in their minds to realize mm-hmm. that um, how it's affecting how it affects women in the past and how it's still affecting them today, and and our contribution to it?
1: Well, it's such a. I mean, it was such an. Uh, just an odd spectacle right so it's free you know it's in this old sugar factory in Brooklyn that's gentrifying right there's a huge Caribbean population around there Mm -hmm. and it's gentrifying um I think that you know it's like like great art there are some people who are going to totally get it yeah um and then other there are going to be other people who just they they're sort of reacting to something that's deep in them that they maybe don't even understand. <laughs>
2: mm, right. you know.
1: And so it's sort of like, I think you had both people, you know, people who got it and people who didn't get it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think they kind of didn't know how to handle all the people who are sexualizing uh, her and degrading her, yeah. you know, at first. But to me, that was the point, the, uh, the, the reactions that it drew, drew out and people, these, these incredible <laughs> reactions yeah. were part of, Genius of this particular um, exhibit because it drew it out, you know. And it's like we think these things are hidden, but they're always there. It doesn't take much to sort of spark them, and then everybody sort of goes back into their old position.
0: Exactly. So, so can an artist ever truly tell the truth and survive, sustain a living?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's that's another question too. I think it's posed in the book because I have other. Uh, you know, Walter Rodney was another character who I looked at the Guyanese um, historian who was killed in a car bomb in yeah. 1980 in Guyana after being chased out of Jamaica, Zimbabwe, and uh, and uh, trying to uh, make a life in his, in his home country. You know, famed historian, studied at University of London. Um, he, for the answer to him, he was like truth like no muzzles, no chill. <laughs> right. he, had no, he, had no he was like the opposite of
0: the book. I'm like, he, a mouth always muzzled, not him.
2: <laughs>
1: no, no, no. But see, he also shows that, you know, um, there could be consequences, you yeah. know, to not having muzzles. So that's the other piece of it. The mouth is always muzzled by the food it eats to live. Mm-hmm. So people have to decide whether they want to live. Like what is more important? Is it is it more important to be unmuzzled or is important to that? And that's sort of like everybody's doing that dance and Mm -hmm. that's not just artists. That's every single person who is alive and who's trying to survive um, is that you have to make a, you're, you're trying to decide between the things that can help you be free and the things that will help you continue to live, mm-hmm. you know, and so he's a pretty dramatic example of that. But I think it plays out in every we Everybody pulls punches. Every mouth is muzzled. Right. You know, and so it's but that's the sort of one of the human condition to me. Um, right. And that's why I thought that that poem was so brilliant by Martin Carter. Yeah. He just he just in very few words described really the human condition.
2: He did. (laughs) The mouth
1: is always muzzled by the food it eats to live.
0: Gosh, yeah, that was was, uh, a deep little line. I'm going to have to use that. (laughs) We'll be right back.
4: No place to hang low washing, And then I can't leave all on the sun Oh no We're gonna rock down to Electric Avenue And then we'll take it higher Oh we're gonna rock down to Electric Avenue And then we'll take it higher
0: Hey, if you're enjoying Book Speeds Beyond, do us a big favor. Go inside any of our show notes of any of our episodes, and you'll see an icon that will take you to iTunes, where you could subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Let's take it back a little bit with Walter Rodney. What what was his significance to Guyana?
1: So Walter Rodney um, was born in '42, I believe. A uh, brilliant scholar, um, studied at the University of the West Indies. Um, then he got another scholarship to do his Ph.D. So he did his Ph.D. at age 24, looking at the West African slave trade. Yeah, right. His father was a, a tr- uh, translator, so he did a lot of his research in Portuguese and Spanish. I mean, just a brilliant, towering uh, intellectual figure. Mm-hmm. Um, he was... Kicked out of Jamaica in 1968, and when he did it, that created the Walter Rodney riots, which mm-hmm. they know now as the Walter Rodney riots. Um, he was had been talking to about lecturing about Black Power with students on campus, and also going into poor neighborhoods and spending a lot of time with Rastas. Which in 1968, you were not supposed to do that. And Rastas were not; they were the undesirables.
0: And that's crazy because when I think of Rastafarian, I just think of Black Liberation, Black Power. Uh, b- yeah. before him it was more like black they were just hippies or you know, like you said deviants or something
1: they were total deviants they were outlaws they were people with the government that police would cut off their locks um, but it was very deep spiritual work that they were doing you know in cultural liberation and he very few people would recognize that and certainly not people who were phds trained in right. London and had as much um elite uh, you know associations as Walter Rodney did so he was expelled from Jamaica then he was worked in Zimbabwe where he published how europe underdeveloped africa which is to this day a yes. seminal uh book about um, how europe underdeveloped africa yeah. you know it's, it's amazing <laughs> yeah. it's it's, a, it's an amazing text to look at um so when he came back to Guyana he was you know i i mentioned earlier this 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 divide between the, uh, the people of Asian descent, uh, Indian descent, and people of African descent, and Walter Rodney really had no time for that. So yeah. He was building a power. He was building a political power, a political party that had was multiracial, and he was coming for President Forbes Burnham's neck. And he was coming <laughs> very hard. He didn't make a secret of it. Mm-hmm. He he's like in it. You know, this is what I learned from my doing this book i come from a long line of smack talkers you know <laughs> and so these people like they just they just have no chill yeah and he just did not care and he because for
0: burnham was almost like a cia backed leader in a sense right
1: he absolutely was mm-hmm. although the cia kind of changed their mind about him a little bit when he made it that's yeah, a socialist republic. So they, he, they, they, he kind of tricked them too. He was kind of a trickster, you know, <laughs> yeah. very complicated, yeah. very, very complicated man,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, as well. And so, yeah, I mean, Walter Rodney went for his neck and, uh, Burnham was not having that. And so their confrontation, I mean, the, the lengths that he went to, I mean, the, so they had a series of hearings in 2015 during the election that the, the pr- ruling government so this is 30 years after this happened. They're like, we would like to know who did this, yeah.
2: right?
1: It was sort of a way to, to scare people or remind people of how things, how horrible things were when the black people ran the
2: country. <laughs> and so
1: they had these series for like two years, and so it was supposed to be a way to kind of air the truth about what happened. Um, they aired some truths, but I don't know that they necessarily did. But it didn't. It, for my purposes. It just gave a wonderful opening, yeah. you know, to be able to talk about him again, revisit his life and think about how the themes of his life, in many ways, he's one of the characters that bring all of the themes of the book together. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's in, in a very unvarnished, <laughs> uh, you know, unfiltered form, you know, how far are you willing to go to be free? Right. Yeah. And Walter went as far as anybody uh, could to go and he, paid the ultimate price and you know that's that's sort of a reality that we face when we're talking about um you know speaking truth to power
0: so how do you think he if 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 he was still around today how do you think he would feel about the uh social political climate today in regards to the black social movements like black lives matter How, how do you think where would he fit in how would he feel
1: this is this is such a good question because that's that's a question I kept thinking in my mind as I was researching and writing this chapter, you know, because he was talking about Black Power movement and that and the global Black Power movement in particular, mm-hmm. and there are many parallels to the Black Lives Matter movement, the way that the, the organizational structure, you know, and how they, you know, these are youth movements, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that, I mean, you, it's hard to compare historical figures now, but I'll say one thing is that Black Power just Linguistically is so much different to Black Lives Matter. Mm. It's just a different. Black Power is like Black Power. It's bold.
2: Yeah, <laughs> you know we're <laughs> here.
1: Black Lives Matter is. It's almost a plea.
2: Yes, I tell you.
1: Yeah. I I feel it's deg- i almost feel degraded to even have to say that my life matters
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this
1: is self evident i'm a human being right. um, but at the same time it's not self evident you mm-hmm. know so it's you know it's it's a it's a different difficult sort of thing i mean i think he he's
2: just he's
1: he went so i don't i have not seen anybody go as far as walter rodney's yeah, gone right you
2: know? because as, as
1: far as like really coming yeah. for people and really really like, not caring yeah. who they offend. Right.
0: Just it was almost like history. by any means necessary with him. And
1: De- I'm not sure
0: how much some of the black social movements today are by any means necessary in a sense. You know you know what I'm saying? I'm wondering how he Yeah. Would, mm-hmm. I mean,
2: we, we still have to see.
1: I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, right. every, every generation has to create its own exactly. blueprint and their own way of doing things. But I do think that it's really useful to go back to these pe- these figures from the past to get both gain in, you know inspiration and also gain a blueprint for okay well, this is what you can do and this is you know yeah. some would argue that Walter Rodney should have been writing ten more how Europe underveloped Africa, yeah. like he might have been more useful to us that way you right. know if he did have a little bit of chill
2: mm-hmm. you know so <laughs> yeah. it's
1: you know so I think that there's different ways that you can look at it That's um true. and you know, it's it's really for for the. I mean, I'm just sort of offering it as, as examples for, for current generation.
0: Um, so, what do you think you know, that in, they can learn learn from Walter Rodney? The, the, the current.
1: Well, I think definitely they could see how the role that scholarship plays in a lot of this. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that scholars can learn the what their role is and what their role has to be agitating. You know, if Walter or Rodney were around right now. Um, so I just wrote a piece for the Huffington Post about the oil deal, right? This two hundred billion dollars oh, yeah. oil that happened, and um,
0: they found oil and, in yeah, Guyana. I mean, so, is what you're? I just wanna.
1: Yes, okay, they yeah. want, they found all this oil, and Exxon Mobil is the company, American company, right? And, mm-hmm. and Rex Tillerson is the head of Exxon, former head of Exxon The day that he was installed as the Secretary of State, he was supposed to be in Guyana,
2: uh-huh.
1: talking about this deal, right? Because he's overseeing it, but now. Under the State Department, he's part of creating the regulatory framework for how this is – so it's like the guard and the chicken and the hen hoop and all of that <laughs> stuff, you know, like the, the fox and the chicken coop yeah. situation. <laughs> and, you know, people – they people – a lot of people attacked me this week, you know, mm. um, some of them even in Guyana, mm. you know, for pointing this out and, and sort of agitating around it. And I just I, – I feel like there – people have to just tell the truth. Yeah. You know th- this country has been, you know, dominated by all of these <laughs> external figures, and thank God it's so be- still so beautiful right. and unspoiled. It's still covered. Tw- it's still eighty percent is rainforest wow, in Guyana, right? Yeah, right? So despite it, so it's it's amazing. It's an unspoiled country, and people need to be screaming to the mountaintops to make sure that they could get the very best deal that they can. Right. But instead, you have people. Oh well. You, you, you. Why are you insulting us by saying we can't handle our business? Mm. Like, well, you know what? It's like you might need some help. You're, you're you, might need some help against Goliath. Yeah, you
2: right. know, and you
1: might need the most people agitating as you can before, not after the deals are done, but now, right. <laughs> while well, you could still do something about it.
0: So you know, you have a so, little, little um, bit of Walter Rodney in you, so you're, you're still well. I mean, I. I, I
1: I have a lot more chill I think I have a lot more chill. I have a lot I, I would like to have a lot like Rodney was killed at thirty eight yeah. you know, I'm forty one. <laughs> I would like to write more books. <laughs> yeah. I would like to see my kids grow up, you know, but at the same time, you know, like you just can't be afraid to tell the truth and I think that this is what we owe. This is yeah. a legacy that we, we, we have to continue. Right. And these are things that these are things that are uh, elders have taught us, and you know, not to mention, you know, the the people who I wrote about in Guyana right now have no chill. Ruel Johnson has no <laughs> chill. Yeah, yeah. None, none. And he none represents whatsoever. he he represents
0: more of the 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 newer generation, highly into technology. Um, mm-hmm. He does most of his activism over social media and so forth. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yep, and also like it it take my breath away some of the things he would tell to say to the leader Mm. you know like the way it's just like he would just grab people by the throat and (sighs) shake and it was just it was so harsh it was very difficult (laughs) even from the US I'm looking at this stuff I'm like oh my goodness
0: we'll be right back
4: people, struggling we struggle, and we don't look for trouble, just ask around but when outside faces from foreign places talk about taking over we ain't backing down now we ain't giving up no mountain and we ain't giving up no tree, we ain't giving up no river, that belong to me not the one blue
5: saki not one rice grain Not one us, Not a blade of grass
4: This land is our land now We're gonna make it somehow We will bend like a bow But never break Our fathers came here And they lived and died here, and we are moving from here, make no mistake, though we ain't giving up no mountain,
5: and we ain't giving up no tree, we ain't giving up no river that belong to we. not one blue sake, not one rice grain, not one for us, not a blade of grass.
0: When you were talking about Raul Johnson, you kind of talked about how he represents this, um, this uh, artistic activist class that, um, that w- the community and people like him are in this community. And they're bringing a lot of art to this community. And you kind of had an argument. I, I just want to try to get more shape around it, how um, art can serve as a tool like in the service of like economic development and how art can uh, inspires growth and regeneration in the community and and how you also talked about the creative class and how they are driving Mm -hmm. the economies of the future. Can can you talk about that in relation to the book and also talking about – I don't know how that ties in with knowing that now that there's oil there, Wouldn't that bring economy – it seems like two things clashing, art and and business in a sense, and if you could talk about that. yeah.
1: I'm so glad that you brought that connection because I I, I didn't bring it out explicitly, but to me that's what I was hoping people would do because the whole thing about – like, Ruel is sort of like this dreamer, utopianist. Guyana can be a place where they can do film here. You know, Mm -hmm. we have this beautiful – Vista, we can do our art and our creative, and we can have this whole sector. And when you really talk, and you know, I looked at this literature. So Richard Florida talked about the rise of creative class and how these, these are winning the, the economies of the future. You know, ideas. You know, that, that's what will drive things. Yeah. So you can kind of skip the whole industrialization phase and just go straight. To, you know, <laughs> go straight to the the creative class. But you know, my argument in in when I'm talking about him is that. You know, I think it's sort of you're selling people a bill of goods because creative class is really more about class. Yeah. Um, if there's no if there's no money, then what are you who are you selling to exactly. and, yeah. you know, what is happening here? So but and this is why the artists are just the best people,
2: <laughs> because,
1: OK, you start thinking about this like, yeah, we can have a creative sector. But then, okay, here's the thing that you're you're running into. You're like, okay, well, where's the money? Mm-hmm. But then, whoa, hold on, we just got 200 billion dollars, <laughs> maybe 400 billion dollars. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing we've been thinking about this, and this crazy person is actually having this utopian vision because yeah. maybe we can do something to to we can actually do something about that now.
2: Right. Yeah. You know,
1: but that's assuming that people are not greedy mm-hmm. and that. Exxon and Rex Tillerson don't have their way. Um, and the, and also the people in charge again don't get greedy mm-hmm. and take off their piece and they could see some of it. So next week I'm going back to Guyana to be to give the Republic lecture during Mashamani's next week,
2: oh, wow. February twenty
1: third. Okay. So I'm going back to give the Republic lecture. And I am going with my mother, who attended a, a her. She went attended a, a school called Marlboro Elementary School. It's like mm-hmm. on the Pomeroon River, on the Essequibo Coast, right near where they found the oil. So wow. these are communities that are mostly indigenous yeah. and black. So my mother is like indigenous and black background. Mm-hmm. And when she went to school in the fifties, they had no electricity. And mm-hmm. when she back went back last year for uh, the fiftieth anniversary of, of independence they still didn't have electricity, oh, wow. right? Yeah. So this, this school has 120 kids mm. and she's been trying to get a solar panel there. She's trying to, you know, she's, so we're going to go visit her village. It is accessible by boat only.
2: Mm. So you have
1: to like, all the kids go to school by boat. Mm. Um, and so these are like, these, these are the communities that are truly left behind, not just within like global, but even within Guyana, they're right. often forgotten. Right. So, that's to me is like that's the sort of issue. Like I'm that's where I'm that's where I'm watching.
2: Right. Like, yeah. This is a
1: lot of talk, yeah. right? It, but if you can't give kids an electricity in their village, then exactly. I don't want to hear about it.
0: Exactly. I just don't
1: want to hear about it from this, anybody.
0: Yeah, this is not going to be the old exploitation. You're going to if if you want to do something with this oil, you, it's going to have to benefit the people. is basically what's going on.
1: It's going to and certainly the people who are right there I mean exactly. the Essequibo Coast, it's a very remote region and I I need to see some some results.
0: Yeah. And
1: I'm gonna be keep being loud about it. I know, you know I told you you have Walter not, Rodney
0: in you. You just don't know it. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. So but I'm grateful for the vision. So back to your question, I am grateful for the vision of these artists because yeah. because you know, you sort of see these things that aren't there and that nobody else sees, you know, it it that's what can keep Driving us forward right. as, a, as a society, um, so I'm grateful to artists. We have to have these dreamers, the, po- the poets, the painters. Um, they're they're essential in helping us move forward.
0: Right? Because you said someone in the book. I forgot exactly to quote. I'm um, so bad that I don't remember it. But someone said, if you can imagine it, it's easy. Now you can create it. I forgot who said that, but that's that just sounds like yeah. an artist. That just sounds like an artist, something it, an artist You know
1: say. what? I'm going to tell you something funny about that quote. That was not an artist. That was a student. That oh. was a 19-year-old engineering student. Wow. And he was the one earlier on in that conversation. He said that he didn't think that Guyana had, like, should be spending their money. We're poor. We're broke. We don't need to be spending our money on art, right? Mm-hmm. And then a little bit later, and this is one of the if arts and society conversations I had. Then later on toward the end, he was like, well, you know, it is important because mm-hmm. it's not about how smart you are. It's about being able to envision something, mm-hmm. you know. And so, you know, like I I feel like, and it, you know, if engineering, future engineers can understand that. I think more future engineering sh- engineers should be able to understand that.
0: Yeah. Um, I think they kind of bleed together. I think m- moving forward, a lot of like the sciences are, sciences are embracing the art. You can see it with the phones we carry and so forth, mm-hmm. they they go so well together, you know, that um, the more that someone like the boy who's an engineer understands that, the possibilities are endless on, on, on every scale. I, I,
1: I agree. I agree.
0: We'll be right back. writing this book changed you in any way?
1: Oh, man. Um, Well, I think it's made me, that's a good question. Uh, Well, first of all, it has helped me, like I've learned so much about Guyana and my mom, who's like my co-pilot on all this, she's learned a lot about Guyana. She was like, I didn't know any of this. they (laughs) didn't teach us any of this growing up. And um, so it's just sort of like understanding some of the, like my own historical, like where, how did I get here? Mm Mm-hmm. You know how did my people get here like who who am i so it helped me understand that so it gave me a lot of more pride and understanding um but also helped me understand how it's all connected globally Mm. it's not one place you know nothing no part of this conversation can happen without the five continents that i mentioned in the title um and so it, and it also, I just getting inspiration from the artists, people like Walter Rodney and, and Bernadette Prasad mm-hmm. and Ruel Johnson and John Berger, who you didn't get to talk about, Tara Walker, it really inspired me to speak out more, um, and to be more fearless and to not sit in the ivory tower and, yeah. you know, um, you know, uh, try to perpetuate the status quo and, to be more um, open, engaged, honest, and, and hopefully encourage my students to do the same.
0: Yeah. So, what 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 kind of conversation do you want to inspire with this book? I feel like the one we had today was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: I'd like to
1: get some more of that. That would be really good. But yeah. I would like, you know, just people making these connections. So, like yeah. again, the connection you make between the oil, which is just one paragraph in the first chapter, mm-hmm. to The whole rest of this journey, you know, looking at it historically, looking at it, you know, regionally, globally, um, and like being able to look at these connections um, to be able to understand this push and pull between the private sector and the public sector and how we really need both. Yeah. Um, I think going into this project, yes, how it changed me, I think going into it, I was more of a person. So starting in 2011, I'm thinking, oh, we just need more, more, more funding for the arts. And and I still believe that, right? But I'm sort of more like, I think Bernadette sounds pretty wise when you think about the Trump administration. You know, controlling the purse strings,
2: oh, right? Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> so, you know, like she starts thinking, like, oh yeah, maybe she has a point. You know, maybe we really don't want too much of this. Yeah, and sure, maybe, yeah. you know, like how legitimate is it when, you know, this certain people who have taken control of the government are di- demanding it or dictating it? Like right. the the idea of a Trump controlling, you know, the
2: arts oh, and humanities horrible. is
1: real. <laughs> It's a very scary thought. And and so you know she's Like, oh, thank, thank goodness we have a public, we have a private sector. But
0: you know, Guyana Bernadette Prasad will paint stuff. some beautiful pictures, though, because she likes to use brilliant colors, and we have an orange president, mm-hmm. so she probably has some very nice pictures. To have a <laughs> She
1: it. probably does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the thing with Bernadette is that her pictures are so beautiful, and it's like this. She, she's finding the beautiful, the beauty of Guyana. So you know, the, where I, where I talk about it being unspoiled, you know, like she's. She painted lush rainforest landscapes, and it's really just showing that, like the absolute beauty um, of the place. And be- despite all these challenges that it's had, like almost because of the challenges, like it has not been developed as much as maybe some people would like. Mm-hmm. But that also means that it's- so much of it has been preserved, um, and so that's so- sort of one of the fights that um, the really important fights ahead. For, uh, for Guyana, yeah, um, but yeah. So it's been, I think the big thing, like, it made me think. Okay, we definitely need a strong public sector, yeah. our, and we also need a strong private sector, yeah. and both are so important because when that mouth is muzzled by the food, mm-hmm. it needs to live. You know, you need to have a diverse amount of sources of food. Right. You know, and divorces, <laughs> yeah. d- diverse sources of support, just so that we can get the most idea that we can have the most honest conversations about where we are as a society mm-hmm.
0: and i always wonder as i was reading this book and just how you're talking about ex- talking about the history of guyana and and all of these these uh revolutionary artists you're actually going toward becoming kind of that revolutionary artist as well and h- how, how do you feel about what that might project on your career how do you feel about your sustainability in a sense? The more you present the truth, what 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 does that? Ooh,
1: kind of that's a to good, you? another good question. That's another good question. I try, you know, just like I. This is also like a personal answer and a public idea of having diverse funding from the public and private sector. You know, that's what I partly, I personally do a lot of different things. Yeah, I still do freelance. I'm a columnist for the Huffington Post now. I just started that this month. I teach at Howard University, uh, you know, um, full time on the faculty. I'm Howard I'm alumni. A so. uh, yeah, <laughs> thank you.
2: Um,
1: and I also do. I'm a fellow at the Interactivity Foundation. I do consulting. You know, I do. I'm very West Indian in my job. In my <laughs> yeah. And that's that's part of that's that's actually the only thing I think I can think I can do to protect my voice. Yeah. You know, is to make sure that I'm not beholden to any one thing and nobody owns me. Right. Um, And I have kids, so I'm very cognizant of keeping that food on the
2: table. Yeah. (laughs) Right.
1: Um, And so, but despite that, I mean, I think that I've had a pretty good run as far as like, I don't feel muzzled,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: although I know I am. I know I am because you know, you just, that's just the human condition, but mm-hmm. I've, I've tried really hard not to be. And, you know, I kind of, I feel like I've been able to have a good career and a good, um, life so far. And, uh, you know, been mostly under the radar and nobody's really messed yeah. with me.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and
1: I, I kind of, I feel like I say what I say, you know, so I've been lucky to have like, you know, my publisher is the new press.
2: Yeah, and they're uh,
1: just dope they're they dope yeah. I, mean, they, I mean they've published so many like they're all about
2: yes, agitation they are. Yeah. you know
1: so <laughs> I, they've published so many people who I c- certainly admire so as long as I can keep you know uh, stay in the community of like fellow agitators or yeah. fellow people who are interested in uh, maybe going off the beaten path um, and so far I've been able to do that and I just hope that I can continue to do that in the future
0: well we we hope you do too and i i truly love this book because it fits this show so well cuz we interview so many artists with like a revolutionary spirit who who mm-hmm. don't want to compromise but they also understand that they need to sustain themselves to survive
2: yeah. so
0: like i'm definitely going to recommend this book to like all the artists to read this this oh. book for like guidance and inspiration cuz it, it's truly what this is about this this podcast is about artists like yourself and musicians who are speaking the truth. And it's hard to kind of sustain yourself and speak the truth. So this matches well together. And I just want to say thank you so much for being on our show. Thank Thank
1: you so much for having me. What an amazing conversation. Thank (laughs) you so much.
0: You're welcome. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes Or you could just go to BooksBeatsAndBeyond.com. And, And, you know, what's cool is by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, and uh, we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you, which we will then put toward the operations of this show. Um, And also, please click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you do this stuff already just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, explore.